0: netcasts you love from people you trust
1: this is twit bandwidth for this
2: week in law is provided by cashfly at c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y dot com
3: This is Twill, This Week in Law with Denise Howell. Episode 108, recorded April 22, 2011. The other pump drops. This episode of This Week in Law is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to Squarespace.com Twill and be sure to check out their annual plans for savings of up to 20% off. And by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. And by Carbonite. Carbonite Pro online backup for your law office. Carbonite Pro backs up your files automatically and continuously, so you're always protected. Learn more and try it free at carbonitepro.com. Hey there. Thanks for joining us for This Week in Law. We've got your legal DJs here bringing you the best mix in this week's stories on law and technology. And we've got a great panel to do that for you today. Uh, we've got Marty Schwimmer back on the show, our favorite trademark lawyer. And we have some big trademark issues to discuss this week. Hi, Marty. Thanks for joining Hi, Denise. us. How are you? I'm really well. And uh, it's great to see you back on the show. Marty practices law over there in White Plains, New York at a firm called Leeson Ellis and a longtime blogger at the trademark blog. So we are um, thrilled to be getting your insights on uh, all the fun trademark stuff going on with Apple and Samsung and stiletto heels, uh, which, you know, if we can talk about iPads and stilettos in the same show, that pretty much makes my whole week. So um, I'm excited to get into that. But I uh, want to go ahead and welcome the rest of our panel first. Uh, newcomer to Twill is Bill Carlton from Seattle.
1: Hi, Bill. Hi, Denise. Thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting me.
3: Oh, it's wonderful to have you. Um, we love your blog at wax6.com. Uh, very interesting blog. If uh, folks have not checked it out, you should. And uh, Bill himself is an interesting technology lawyer who works a lot with startup companies at a firm called, uh, let me see if I can pronounce this right, McNall, Ebel, Narot, and Helgren.
1: Yeah, very good. I got it in Seattle. Most people can't get it on the first try, yeah.
3: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, wow, I was looking at your about page. You have some uh, some interesting uh, things that you've been up to and are up to. I love that you directed the first feature film shot in high definition. That's a great yeah, tidbit. It
1: was, yeah, yeah, it, and it, and it really was that. And it even got play on uh, on HDNet because back then the film wasn't that good. I got to admit, it, you know, mm-hmm. it, it showed at a few film festivals. It was awfully fun to do. But and and the 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 story the narrative was about uh, a dot com company in Seattle and setting a love triangle in that setting. Um, we had some good actors, but you know it just kind of it kind of got out of control. It should have been a small show with with um, you know a small crew. And next thing I knew, we just didn't know what we were doing. We had like eighteen speaking parts, which is sort of unheard of, and we had like twenty different locations, which is crazy and insane. But People really threw themselves into it. And then because HDNet made this commitment to go uh, all HD all the time and there just wasn't that much HD content, uh, they bought the movie and they showed it like at midnight and 2 a.m. for two or three years. So that was, that was kind of fun. That was kind Is of Is that fun Mark Cuban's network? Yeah. 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 But I can't even bear to, to look at it now. I was just glad that people put so much work into it, were able to sort of legitimately put that on their – beginning filmmaker resumes because at least got you know got showed on cable tv to the to the 300 subscribers there were back then
3: <laughs> well, you, you've got to figure out a way to give it a new life uh, maybe stream it on netflix or something let us let us know where we can catch it
1: okay okay i think that was a challenge <laughs> do, do, you, do you you know my i don't know if it's on my uh, but my current sort of creative side thing is a is an iphone app called angel trivia daily that, uh, that pushes out a uh, multiple choice question each day about angel financing and startup terminology with some gossip thrown in there. Now yeah, and I love that. Us. So if you're a person
3: the in the startup world, you, you have this app. Is, it's, is it just for iPhone?
1: It is. We start Android development next week. Mm-hmm. And then um, we've also engaged a guy to help us figure out um, how to make a Facebook game out of it too. So we're oh, just trying to populate it wherever we can.
3: Angel Trivia Daily and you and Joe Wallen post a new question to the app every day and uh, people test their knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Sounds very cool. I'll have to check that out. Uh, Test my startup knowledge, which um, probably is a bit rusty these days. So it seems like a good way to brush up. Um, Also joining us again is Evan Brown. Hi, Evan.
0: Hello. Hello. How's it going? Hope you're having a uh, good Friday. It's good to see you. Looking it forward is to good our Friday, conversation, and here.
3: it is a Good Friday.
0: Yes, yes. So this is going to be fun. I've been looking forward to uh, to this all week. You know, it's going to be a great conversation with Bill and Marty. It's always good to uh, talk with you. Uh, and so this is uh, it's going to be awesome. Let's get going.
3: Yeah, let's get going. So of course, <laughs> yeah. you know the the story. The elephant in our Twill room today has to do with Apple and Samsung. And uh, the fact that there is a whopping big patent case that is pending now between these two parties who have a very um, tight-knit working relationship with each other. So it's sort of extraordinary that... um we find ourselves looking at this whopping big uh, both patent and trade dress suit. Uh, we're going to have Nilay Patel on the show next week, and he has written, I would have to say, the definitive guide to the lawsuit for the lawyer and non-lawyer. Who, anyone who doesn't want to uh, dig through the rather lengthy complaint. Um Neil I really unpacks it well. Uh, and so um, we're going to talk to him uh, about the patent side. And we're also going to have Matt Macari on next week to talk more about that part of the case. Uh, but we've got Marty Schwimmer on today. And uh, Marty, tell me exactly um, why iPads are like Louboutin shoes. <laughs> They're
2: like <laughs> Louboutin shoes in that they were both the owned by plaintiffs who filed trade dress cases this week. Right. Um, well,
3: I, I mean, more substantially. <laughs> let's, let's talk about trade dress here. I'm holding up my, one of my only pairs of stilettos. They are not Louboutins, um, but, you know, they're ah, as high, high as I ever well, get. I happen to my my be footwear. wearing
2: Louboutins right this second. So let me show you my pumps. Um, <laughs> no. If I wow. could show There's you them, you would, you would see <laughs> that their soles were red lacquered. And if you were Louboutin and you wanted to conduct a survey, you would hold them up in a, in a mall and you would say to people, who puts these out? And you would hope that a substantial number of people say Louboutin puts them out, of course. Right. They're very um, distinctive. They were have these, to, if, sorry, I'm if talking you were able over you. you to do that. I can't hear you, Denise. Sorry. They have these
3: distinctive red rubber soles. And so the reason I bring them up in connection with the Samsung suit is uh, because they have this very distinctive look and feel to them. Um, Trade dress, in my mind, and you'll have to um, correct me because you are the expert in this area, has to do not with the way something is designed from an engineering manufacturing standpoint, but the way it is designed from a design standpoint, the way it looks, feels, tastes, smells, something Sensory about it. Am I right about that?
2: Um, Your use of the word design and the way it looks is the important um, element here because we are not talking about anything that's functional. Uh, If it looks, if a product looks the way it looks because of some functional reason, that will not be protected under trade dress law. Um, An example of a really famous trade dress would be the Coke bottle, um, which has a distinctive shape and it doesn't need to look that way for any bottle functionality-related reason. Similarly, the red lacquer sole of a Louboutin shoe does not have to look that way. Um, Functionality is going to be one of the important issues in why an iPad looks the way it does.
3: So does that mean that their trade dress claim is, is out the window because functionality is tied up in it? Or can you unpack that in more detail for us?
2: It has at least two um, sets of trade dress. One about the way the iPhone and iPad face look, and one in which the way the box looks. Could you pick up that box behind you? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh,
3: My set dressing trade dress right here. Here we have the iPad box.
2: All right. So, with regards to the face, with regards to the face of the product, Um, They are claiming there may be eight or so design elements that they're claiming and each individual one may not be so distinct. So, for example, that the corners are rounded, that the border is black, that the icons have rounded corners, that there is a row of four icons on the bottom that do not change regardless what the top part of the screen is, the proportions of the black borders. Now you are showing the Samsung um, trade dress. Um, And again, you're seeing rounded corners, and you're seeing a black frame, and you are seeing uh, a grid of four icons, and you are seeing an unchanging row of four icons on the bottom. And I also realized immediately that I misspoke. There are three. There's another set of trademark claims, and that has to do with the icons themselves. Do you happen to have the side-by-side icon JPEG that I sent?
3: The studio certainly does. Can we uh, try and put that up for Marty? There we go.
2: The left um, column are icon, are Apple icons. So that's the phone up on top, chat Uh, photos, gears for settings, notes, a little man's um, silhouette for a different form form of notes, and the iTunes uh, icon. The right column is the Samsung Galleries icons. Again, the phone and the chat and photos. um, So settings, you see gear for gear, notes, and a a man's silhouette. Um, I guess we should take a step back and say where good lawyering comes in <laughs> in a situation like this. I kind of think, I mean, I find myself in the situation where the client comes and says, here's, here's my proposal for the way things look. And I'll say, look, I, I know that phones are the universal, a handset is a universal way of signifying a phone, but does it have to be that close? Um. I should point out that this is not a copyright claim. This is a trademark claim. Apple is saying that, well, they have registrations for some of these icons, but they're saying, look, these icons designate Apple as a source. Uh, and with the f- phone handset, uh, you understand why Samsung would say, well, how many different ways can you represent you know, a phone function? Um, harder to say why you absolutely needed a gear Um, to designate the configuration of settings functionality. So Samsung will, I think, be kind of wrong-footed on explaining some of their icon choices. Um, Returning perhaps back to the face of the phone, bit by bit there's some functionality in there. I mean, things are visible in a certain way when they have a black um, outline, for example, I would imagine that you could explain some functional reasons why a corner uh, might be rounded as opposed to sharp, where it could tear, tear a hole in your in your jacket. Um, but that is one of the ways in which the court is going to evaluate this: Are these individual design points functional? I wonder if you could um, open up the iPad box, Denise, if the tray is still in the box.
3: Probably. Hold
2: well
3: on. Okay. Uh, so yes. one
2: one of the claims in Apple's tray dress for the box mm. is that oh, there is a tray up. that rests on the top of the box and allows the product to be displayed at the top of the box the second you open it. And um I don't like to often criticize other people's draftsmanship, but when I read that particular sentence, that the tray allows you to visualize the product more easily in the box when you open it, I said, you know, that kind of sounds like a functional claim. It looks this way so as to perform a function. In order to defend your trade dress case, you basically have to say it looks this way for a decorative aesthetic reason. Right. So that is going to be an example of a, a problematic claim. There is the um, Samsung Sam- Samsung box, and again, it's it's similar in proportion. Um, there is a tray. Um, there's What's also that crazy looking plug in the middle.
3: European just- plug, it looks like.
0: Oh. This is this is quite cosmopolitan. Yes,
2: but it, but in any event, you'll see that there's the tray. There's also uh, silver lettering on the box. Again, Samsung will will have to say, well, of all of the colors in the rainbow, why did you pick one that's not in the rainbow? Silver um, for for your lettering. Um, there are a host of defenses to this. Among everyone's doing it, uh, it's not particularly distinctive to Apple. Um, but this is how this is how it will go. Was Apple's choices are they functional? What was Samsung's choices? Um, it's going to be a very interesting trade dress case.
3: Yeah, it is going to be interesting. I I think that um, as someone in chat was saying, I think it was uh, uh, oh, I didn't write down who it was, but they were saying, you know, if if there were this distinctive color on the actual device, you know, if it had a red back, like the Louboutins have their red soles, um, that they could see, you know, how this would be more of uh, an argument on Apple's part. And I too, I'm sort of struggling with how, you know, you're able to bring a a very substantial lawsuit um, over good packaging. You know, Apple is, is the emperor of excellent packaging as, and as somebody who spends, you know, way too much of her time unbundling kids toys that are bound up with those terrible, God awful wire things. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate Apple's good packaging and, and just the, the fact that people are emulating good packaging, I think is something that, you know, as a society, mm-hmm. from a policy standpoint, we would want to encourage under the law. Um, and when I look at, you know, the Apple packaging versus the Samsung packaging, yeah, it's similar in that it's simple. Um, but, you know, we have things that are different shapes, different colors. Is, is, are they really able to um, enforce a claim on the premise that, you know, Apple has well-designed packaging and others are now trying to emulate them?
2: Um, to un- unpack what you just said, Um when you said they have good packaging, you then seem to give functional reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, they seem to be easy to unpack. For example, um, that so if that's caused by the shape of the box, the relationship of the top lid to the bottom lid, the material, so that you know there isn't a lot of high friction in opening it, as opposed to a shrink wrap package, for example. Um, you are articulating a functional aspect. And if Samsung can argue that, yes, we're emulating this functionality and that's why the boxes look similar, then that would be a successful defense with regards to good packaging. Another sort of issue is that pre-purchase and post-purchase, um, normally, I mean, trademark confusion can arise because there's something away in which you encounter the package in the store that's confusing and leads to a confused purchase or post-purchase in that you see someone with the product. You see someone with the Louboutin shoes, with the red shoes, and you lust for them and you say, where did you get those shoes? And they say, ah, Louboutin, that's the only place to get the red shoes. So that's an example where post-purchase confusion can be actionable. It's harder to articulate a theory As to how Samsung gets a sale because of the way its packaging looks, unless people really see the packaging in a a display case or something. And then they, ah, this must be the smartphone that I want to buy, the person confusedly said.
3: Right, because they look similar. Well, I mean, the fact is we have gotten to this world where all smartphones do kind of look similar. And I think people have been waiting for, and I hate to say it, the other shoe to drop <laughs> on this to see uh, if uh, uh, Apple was going to begin to start clamping down on people. And and yes, indeed, it looks as though they, they are not pleased with the fact that they came up with this great um, sensorial, visual, tactile experience um, that... You know again, others are emulating uh, maybe for reasons of function and maybe for reasons of um, confusion with a very popular and status associated brand uh, Bill, have you taken a look at the suit, and what are your thoughts
1: uh well i yeah i uh, I did read it when uh, what, uh, Denise when you put it on the um, the list I read that it was interesting to read. I wanted to ask Marty if. You know, he said he didn't want to sort of second guess other people's drafting. But one thing that stuck out to me was the use of the metaphor, uh, the face of computer and telecommunications industries. And it comes up a few times in the complaint that Apple has changed the face of the industries. And I think they're meaning that as a, you know, as a metaphor, as a you know figure of speech, like they've really revolutionized the industry. But I wondered if that's problematic for them, too, because because you can take that that term literally too. And it, and if they've sort of set a new standard that phones, you know, don't, don't look like that anymore. They look like here's a Samsung. It's not the, I don't, it's a wind phone, but you know, they, that all phones now have to be a piece of glass. The surface is a piece of glass. And that's just, um, that's just like a new standard for the industry. That isn't, uh, uh that's a new function. That's a new thing that phones have to do. They have to be, they have to have primarily a touch interface as opposed to a, um, you know the kind of the keypad interface. Is that problematic, or am I just misinterpreting or overreading that that metaphor?
2: No. Um, well, with regards to their use of the term "face," changing the face, it it could be almost a, the problem with their argument, and you've touched on it. Apple has pioneered several different elements. In smartphones. And you're quite right to say that touch, touch screen is the obvious, the touch interface is the obvious point. And Samsung will have to argue, or Samsung may choose to argue, that it is the nature of a touch screen that dictates some of the elements that Apple is claiming exclusivity for. For example, because it's a lit screen like this, does a black border make this touch screen more legible? If so, then black borders are a, have a functional aspect to it, to which Apple will say, well, you didn't have to choose our exact proportions of a black border. Um, But this is the way that your your point, it'll cut two ways. Number one, if they've changed the face, they're implied, they are implying that everyone has adopted this, which means their use is diluted if not, it was originally distinctive because there was nothing like it the day it arrived. But it is diluted, and it's already diluted. And there's nothing about this suit that could stop that dilution. So that is certainly something that um, Samsung would argue. And then there's this functionality thing that because everyone's adopted this, they have to look this way. That that actually is another thing that the public has come to demand certain qualities and that's functional
1: you know it's interesting because you what you're saying there's a quote for the, the apple complaint quotes time magazine saying quote the iphone changed the way we think about how mobile media devices should look feel and perform it's almost prescriptive this phone has come out and now everybody must make their phones this way
2: well, that, that is a quote that comes back to haunt you because when you have the case law that defends that functional aspects will not be protected, similarly to like descriptive words cannot be trademarked, the court will normally say the other vendors in this industry shall not be prohibited from doing things the cheapest way, uh, the most efficient way, the smartest way. Um, and I think an implication is that they will not be prohibited from doing the way that everyone demands that they do it: a sleek, flat, glass- faced touch interface. So I think that you have very correctly pointed out that in the need to prove that they 're famous, they are also impliedly say that this has become industry standards and industry standards, courts will want to keep industry standards free for all to use.
1: Yeah. Hey, Denise. And I noticed one other interesting thing when you picked up the box, when Marty asked you to pick up the box and bring it forward, Mm I think you, you, you opened it sort of like, like this, right. Or or you were like pulling at one, one side. And I thought part of the, I thought part of the, the thing that Apple wanted you to do was to sort of open it like this and have the air kind of, kind of whoosh out as Uh you kind of pull it. Pull it up! Oh my I mean, gosh! Isn't now
0: Adobe's the- going to get after you for saying the word air. Good
1: job! <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> also, <laughs> but no, I that was you like did a into- whoosh. Oh, you're right. A Tupper whoosh. No, That's but I right. thought it, it was, was kind interesting. Then <laughs> you didn't. You didn't instinctively pull it up like 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 that. Like I think they're saying is part of the gestalt of opening up an iPhone. I thought was right. You know, or an apple box in general, not ripping, not ripping the top off like you do every other thing that's stapled together too hard or right, glued or together having to too cut hard. through
3: unseverable plastic.
1: Yeah. So, yeah.
3: Um, so there's so much to talk about about this case, and uh, I know we're going to sort of do part two of our discussion on it next week with the patent folks. But uh, as sort of a side note to all the trademark and trade dress stuff, one other interesting point I thought. Um, that came out was how much financial information was in the complaint that, uh, you know, hadn't been released in other contexts. Folks who follow Apple as a company have been very interested to pounce on the sales numbers that could be extrapolated as Apple tried to make their claims and set forth their case for damages. Um, Evan, do you think that this was a case of the uh, the legal department not sufficiently um, checking in with the compliance department or the Financial p r folks before they went ahead and filed, or do you think this was just you know sort of uh, we'll go ahead and put this stuff out there
0: This is always uh really. Uh, a tough issue to uh, think about and act on when you're getting ready to file a complaint for for trademark infringement for a number of reasons. Yeah, it could be like you know an oversight or a miscommunication or a lack of communication. What what you're suggesting there, uh, but the reason that that uh, you know I have found it problematic in matters that I'm working on when I'm representing a plaintiff in a trademark infringement action is that you know you put all this stuff in there and then it's all these facts that you know you you then have the obligation to. Improve, uh later on. So, you know, uh, I always try to be very careful when talking about these things thinking to myself, you know, is it really necessary to go into all this great detail as to how much uh, has gone into marketing and sales and all that stuff? Because naturally these are things that are that are useful in the uh, in presenting the prima facie case for trademark infringement if you're talking about the the strength of, of the mark mm-hmm. uh, and and how much it's uh, you know how valuable it is you know you want to bolster that with with data uh, like this. So it certainly is a double edged sword and you know what comes out of it in in either uh whichever way that double edged sword cuts is you know, there are some interesting facts here and some some of these numbers are pretty staggering. What was it, a hundred and almost a hundred and ten million iPhones sold and maybe you know about uh, I, I don't have it right in front of me, but I'm just kind of going by some some notes I have here. And about one tenth of that, as many iPads have been sold, something like ten million iPads, isn't that right? Uh, some of those some of those numbers. So this is those are those are some some crazy numbers and all this stuff.
3: They are indeed millions and millions. Um, Marty, yeah. I wanted to pick up on something you said a minute ago. Uh, you mentioned descriptive words cannot be trademarked. Now, do you think anybody had that conversation with Apple before they started firing off at Amazon and others about using the term App Store?
2: Well, if I said that, I overstated it or misstated mm-hmm. it. It's that okay. descriptive words can't be protected without proof of secondary meaning. Just as we talked about the proof of secondary meaning where you hold up the shoe with the red sole and you say, who do you put this out? Who puts this out? You hold up the word and you say, who, who is this? Who does this identify? So, the, so Apple will have to say, if I show this mythical survey the word App Store, and I say, who does this signify? What will people say? Um, and I have to uh, be kind of circumspect. I should disclose that I am consulting one of the parties um, mm-hmm. that is involved in adverse proceedings with Apple about this. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'll only quote from publicly available papers. Um, Apple is indeed arguing that it has a protectable trademark in App Store. Uh, And third parties will have to show that app has become a generic term for apps. And that store is already a generic term for places where people buy things, virtual or otherwise. And therefore, everyone understands um, that an app store is any place where you can go to get apps. Right.
3: Do you, do you think it would, you know, in hindsight, do you think it would have behooved Apple to come up with um, some very non-generic term uh, when they started? Because, you know, I guess they were the first people who had these tiny little applications that would run on smartphones and began calling them apps um, or on tablets as well. Uh, do you think, you know, in hindsight, they're kicking themselves and saying we should have called this something else, something completely non-distinct?
2: I'm doing a little editing in my in my head right now. Sorry. What, what I, mean, I should say distinct. That's proper. Let me let me put it a different. Let me phrase it differently. Normally, I advise clients to to choose Xerox as their trademark. To to choose an astoundingly coined, arbitrary term that allows them to create brand equity more easily. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that Apple has such astounding brand power between the Apple mark and the iTunes mark and the iPhone mark. People will show up for their app store, whatever they want to call it. So maybe the way to phrase it is, do you really want to fight for exclusivity of the term app store? Mm-hmm. Um, is that really worth The money, as opposed to the way you phrased the question. Mm
3: -hmm. Um, In IRC, we're saying that we're um, let's see, it's Web fifty one sixty. Who's chimed in that Apple has always said applications instead of programs, and the file extension is .app, so it made sense to say App Store. Um, But you know, again, if you're going to, Apple is not the only person who has called. Um, computer programs, applications. Historically, I would imagine, um, you know, it's someone else is saying applet, and app is an obvious abbreviation of application. So, um, you know, they they definitely sort of rolled the dice in deciding to call their marketplace an app store, and and invited people to, you know, if you're going to have a clothing store or a CD store, it's a, it's an object. Um, it's, it's something that people can buy. It's not, you know, if they had come up with some crazy, (laughs) I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not the person to come up with the cute, unique name, but, um, presumably Apple's uh, design and marketing team could have done so. Uh, Evan, any thoughts on that?
0: Well, yes. I mean it it's interesting uh, what you, what you say Marty because you know I I'm I'm with you when you say you know you want to counsel clients a certain way to come up with you know like a coined completely made up term like Xerox is a great example and I think Kodak is a made up term, right? You know those are great from the the trademark perspective and and I think it makes us sleep a little bit better at night. Yeah. Uh, as trademark counsel and all of this stuff, but you know clients love descriptive marks, and I think for good reason, uh, because you know if you can claim some kind of exclusivity in a term that 's generic and carve out your rights in that in relation to everyone else in the marketplace you 've got something of great value uh, i think i 've brought it up on the show before, I know I bring it up in, in conversation a lot about these things, but think of the uh, the the completely descriptive, Mark, waste management. You know, there's this huge company that does, well, waste management. You know, they do recycling and garbage. Do you all have it in your parts of the, the country? I think it's a like an international company, right? It's like a yellow yeah. and green. I mean, how much more descriptive can you get as to what they do? But boy, does that really evoke a powerful image uh, in the minds of the consuming public as to the source of, of those services. So, you know, and, and so that, that, you know, with, with App Store, that seems not even quite as descriptive as that, because at least you're playing around with abbreviating the word application. And, you know, obviously it has kind of a, at least implied double entendre being the first three letters of the company name as well, you know, Apple and all that stuff. So um, I, 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 gave, I give great, uh, I give kudos to Apple for doing, uh, you know, going about it this way and coming at it with as much strength uh, at least, you know, in forcefulness, in in trying to carve out this spot in the marketplace, and uh, being aggressive against Amazon, for example, you know, in in filing the lawsuit against them on that. Because if, you know, I just don't I, in my mind, and I'm just one one guy sitting here, but in my mind, it just doesn't seem so absurd that they could try to claim some kind of exclusivity for for App Store when it when it, when it comes to yeah. this. It seems really smart in a certain certain angle. Yeah.
1: Well,
2: a couple of points. First of First, if we're in the same universe, I mean, I agree with some of the phenomena you pointed out about waste management, and I'll go you a couple better, Uh, American Airlines, uh, General (laughs) Motors, General Electric. So the idea that descriptive or even somewhat generic terms can be transformed through uh, success and publicity into powerful trademarks is a correct one. Also, I mean, I know it's an IRC comment here about marketing always wants the easiest identification and that lawyers want to make it hard. Um, I wouldn't categorize it quite that way. Marketing, especially when they're first to market, want to monopolize the descriptors in that field because of ease of identification and because it's a anti-competitive tool. Um, So... Also, we're kind of talking about a tertiary identifier. People are find themselves at the App Store because of Apple's powerful brand and then the, the iTunes powerful brand and the iPhone powerful brand. Um, whether that kind of made the App Store famous I, by, by reflected glory, I don't know. Also, what would you have Amazon call its store by which it sells apps? what should any of the other smartphone providers call their store by which they disseminate apps
1: right. right having changed having changed the face of technology so that everything needs to look feel and act like an apple device that 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 puts other competitors in a conundrum if they can't offer apps the other thing i'm thinking about is you know there is a uh, an overlap between the apple brand and 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 the term app, there's the app, the repeat of the, of the those three letters, and I wonder if in retrospect, not the, I want to take Apple's side in this, but I wonder if retrospect, it might be ruining really not taking more opportunities to uh, forward the App Store term with some sort of overlay and begin to associate app and Apple in that in that uh, overlap uh, that might kind of make it feel more intuitively like yeah, you're going to associate. App with Apple because of the the um, the overlap in the two words.
0: Well, you you do see it with the image of an apple a lot. And Marty, there's that famous case. I yeah, I haven't the foggiest idea what it's called, but didn't it involve mobile? It was like a, like a petroleum company called Pegasus that was in a fight a trademark dispute with mobile and mobile of course has a pegasus as its logo and the interesting issue in all of that was there the word pegasus doesn't appear in any of mobile's uh marketing efforts but it was successful in asserting rights against pegasus because of that visual cross mapping of,
2: of all of that stuff
0: am i just making that case up or did i dream about it or do you does that is that coming up in your consciousness at all
2: you're hallucinating entirely. There's no, no, the case, the case <laughs> is mobile no oil, mobile Just oil versus Pegasus. So you're right. Mobile, <laughs> mobile oil versus Pegasus. It's a second circuit case. It happens to be well known because it is the start of the initial interest confusion doctrine. Um, but you have um, raised a point that was always puzzling to me as exactly that you Pegasus is the, was the logo of mobile at that time, and the bad guys were calling up brokers and saying, hi, we're from Pegasus Petroleum, and and the court accepted that people were associating Pegasus um, with mobile. And I would say that that's pretty, pretty unusual. I would say that – I don't know whether people these days when they see a flying horse knows that the name of the flying horse is Pegasus um, – <laughs> But, but you have proven, I think, a somewhat unusual aspect of branding psychology about people, words, associating words up. Oh, that's it impressive. Is.
0: You know, we all know about this because of the re-release of Clash of the, or the remake of Clash of the Titans last year, right? <laughs>
1: that's right. <laughs> Set
3: free the Pegasus. <laughs> um so Marty, we've gotten a couple of interesting comments I'll just throw in from IRC. Uh somebody is wondering uh JD N, oh gosh, N Canyon <laughs> is wondering uh if someone has programs trademarked, uh since a program is the same thing essentially as an app. Um someone else threw in uh the container store as another example of, you know, American Airlines type brands. Um, that is a very generic thing that clearly identifies that particular store. Um, and I've been thinking, you know, you mentioned that Apple has over the years rather vigorously protected its ability to call things iThings and tried to prevent other people from calling them iThings. And uh, another IRC-er um, threw in that they should have just called it the App Store and they would have had a better case but of course that doesn't trip so lightly off the tongue as app store there's an i app for that it takes two syllables to say so um, I don't know that that uh, shades anything uh, Marty uh, any thoughts on those
2: I'm getting a little distracted reading the IRC chat as, as it goes <laughs> by I see that someone said um, I saw that i app store mm-hmm. um, app market that that's a fairly um, plausible thing. Whoa, whoa yeah, we got to be careful, though, with the market
0: stuff. You're going to get the, the Googles after us.
2: The
3: Googles after us for market?
0: Yeah, the Android market.
3: Oh, I there mean, we go. Yeah, you're geez. absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. As someone who doesn't use an Android, that did not pop quickly to my mind. I
0: was I was so confused there for a moment. I just had this real big crack up, you know. <laughs> I saw the little green robot thing.
3: Right, and Amazon uses Marketplace, as uh, Matt points out in IRC. Well, we are not done with talking about Apple's various legal quandaries. They're up to their armpits in it this week. Uh, But before we get to more Apple stuff, I want to thank our sponsor Carbonite, Carbonite Pro, to be specific. Uh, You know, a computer disaster is devastating. Imagine losing your client files, your billing records, all your apps, all your programs. That's why more law law offices are using Carbonite Pro online backup. With Carbonite Pro, your files are backed up automatically. So it really gets done continuously. They're stored securely and safely off-site. Plus, each employee can access their backed up files from any computer or on their smartphone, whichever one it is and whichever marketplace they buy their apps and other things from. Uh, with a free app. Mm. Prices start at just $10 a month and you can start your free one month trial at carbonitepro.com. That's carbonitepro.com. And I'm not just a plugger of this product. I am a loyal user. Um, It's fabulous. It's running on the computer that I'm using right now. And it's running so quietly in the background that I don't think it's giving me a single Skype So thank you so much, Carbonite, for your support and for keeping my files safe and secure. They can do that for you, too. All right. So let's uh, go on to our next Apple story, uh, which has to (laughs) do—this one is near and dear to my heart. Um, Apple has been sued now over um, the process of uh, hidden charges for in-app purchases, uh, specifically this had, it's it's a common story. I don't, uh, Bill, I don't know if you have kids. I know the rest of us do, uh, but you know, you're the parent, you've given your iPhone or, you know, perhaps your child's own iTouch or iPad uh, to them to use. And uh, lo and behold, you pick up your credit card statement and there are $500 of charges on there that you had no idea were coming through simply because your child knows uh, the proper password to enter to say, okay, I'd like to buy that in-app item, whether it's, you know, the uh, the Mighty Eagle and Angry Birds or, you know, whatever added bonus the game makers or other application uh, supplements are out there um, have seen fit to put in their apps. So um, finally, there there is... Uh, some uh, brouhaha about this. Uh, Evan, are you surprised to see this come up?
0: Um, No, not at all, because I know that people file ridiculous lawsuits all the time. Mm -hmm. So that's what's animating my my thoughts of this. I mean, Mm -hmm. how hard is it to make sure that your kid doesn't buy, you know, apps that you did or, you know, make purchases that you don't know about right there? I mean, this is totally not apple's responsibility um they've made some changes since then so there are some remedial efforts which of course you know shouldn't have any evidentiary value in all of this stuff but this is just you know um the, uh, maybe it's just because marty's on the show and then and and, and i'm somehow led to be more libertarian or something just by being in marty's presence but uh and you can see i'm smiling real big marty um you know i I just can't believe that that um that the guy who's filing this lawsuit is going to try to shirk so much of his own accountability over what his uh, kids are doing or how other parents might be able to supervise what their kids are doing using a device it's just this is um this is you know one of the silliest lawsuits i've seen in a long long time
1: well I can give okay. you the uh, the voice mm-hmm. of experience from a parents point of view. Um um and I don't have direct experience with the app the the Apple in store purchases, but the bane of my existence through my youngest son's teenage years has been uh, Xbox Live and and somehow my one or two of my credit cards getting associated with with um that service over the years and so there'd be some new game or release or something and and you just you just I don't know i've never been a, I've never been able to completely clamp it down because you know I give in like the the game is the coolest one and three guys are over and they want to <laughs> order a pizza and they gotta they gotta have the game and you know the path of least resistance is just but then the the credit card is there in the xbox Live system and it's just too easy, too tempting somebody clicks a button it's only five bucks' I'll tell Dad about it later so you just have to you just have to barter with them you just have to say, what do I get <laughs> for that you know for that twelve right. bucks are you gonna do the dishes the next couple of days or do something. Yeah. Well, this is beyond
3: I, I know. just I, I phones with- and tablets, as you point out, you know, it's on, um, console game systems. Uh, the iTunes store I think has some distinction, uh, when you're using it on your computer, uh, between having one click purchases on or off so that, you know, you, you're not just able to, um, automatically hit the credit card associated with the account. Um, and, uh, you know, so it, it, oh, and even just on your television, you know, you've got uh, your Roku box hooked up to various services where, mm-hmm. you know, it's either one click or, you know, you just need to know a password and you're hit with various charges, your cable on demand service. Um, so, you know, it's a common problem. And, and the question, I guess, comes down to how how responsible is the device or program manufacturer Um, for the fact that there's a convenience involved in having the, you know, convenience for them and for the user in having a credit card associated with the account. Marty, what were you going to say?
2: Well, I think I'm almost as libertarian as Evan, and I just, you know, try to take the opposing view to make for good television. A couple Mm -hmm. points. First off, uh, it's, it's the parents' fault a lot of the time when there's complete disclosure, and I learned that the hard way or at least the 72 dollar way the first week that i let my then 13 year old you know buy itunes songs um there's a little bit of human nature involved i mean don't before westlaw nexus offered all you could eat packages those first year associate bills were pretty <laughs> high because they got trained into not thinking there was a cost associated you know with with pulling down a case or something So even when there is disclosure, human nature kind of makes you run up the tab. Um, But, I mean, I kind of agree with Evan. If there is disclosure to the parent about the cost per unit and they still give the password to the kid, I don't see the manufacturer having much of a moral uh, liability. Um, But that was a key if – Is there disclosure about the per item purchase? And you know, if we're talking about all of these things, this burgeoning virtual goods industry with like social games on Facebook, Mm -hmm. do people really understand what the charges are as as you know they're racking up the, the points?
3: Right. Well, if this is one where, where Apple is perhaps morally in the right and, and simply just trying to provide a good user experience and there's not you know a perfect way of ensuring who the user is um, and whether they are authorized to have the charge, um, there's a slightly different uh, moral shade to um, what's going on with finding one's location via one's. For example, um, 3G capable cellular capable device, an iPad or an iPhone, for example. Um, and Senator Al Franken this week has you know taken Apple to task on that, written a letter with many, many questions for Apple about uh, what information they're gathering on location and how they intend to use it and um, the nuances of disclosure of all of this. Um, Evan, what do you think about all this? A- a- we've talked about uh, Apple's privacy policy before which, um, you know, is something like 48 pages long and uh, does talk about gathering location. But I guess if I'm uh, extrapolating correctly what's in the good senator's mind, he doesn't think that that's necessarily a sufficient justification for um, doing this. Is, is that your take on it too?
0: Well, it is. And I think that for us to, you know, discuss this most meaningfully, we've got to really examine what it is that has uh, precipitated um, the, the the senator's letter, and it's this you know this big news that came out this past week. It was uh, a couple of data scientists named uh, Alan and uh, Warden uh, gave a presentation at O'Reilly's Wear 2.0 conference about this file that is saved on the machine that you sync. Your iPhone uh, with and this 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 unencrypted unprotected file is just a trove of location based data about the user, and so you know this this um, if one wants to be sensational about it in sensationalist about it, I mean this really kind of takes up the level of creepiness by, by a couple of notches. Um, I guess from what we can tell, it, it doesn't appear that, that this, you know, vast amount of information, uh, is, uh, being sent to Apple, but it is, you know, available on the, the machine to which the, the device is, is synced here. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the things that, that underlie or the, the impetus that underlies Senator Franken's letter Oh, well, separate and apart from 99% of the impetus, which is just, you know, political satisfying the, the constituency, is, you know, kind of a bafflement or a wonderment as to what all of this information is being stored for. Does it serve a legitimate purpose uh, for Apple? Uh, and and incidentally, the news just came out today. Both of these uh, stories are written up on Read, Write, Web that um, uh, Android devices do something similar, except that the information is stored on the, the device. Itself, And it doesn't appear to be as much information. It's written over as the cache becomes full. So we're at this point, since these stories are new and this discovery of the, this storage of so much information that has uh, so much, well, you know, informational value to it, you know, why, why is it here? And my takeaway or a couple of points that I take away from this are actually just questions that come up uh, to me are one is the obvious or one is the obvious question. Why are these manufacturers doing this? And that's what Al Franken seems to be worried about. I keep wanting to say Stuart Smalley, but that's neither here nor there. And the (laughs) other one is, Oh my gosh! Did it really take us this long to fi- figure out that that's what they're doing? Aren't people hacking these things all the time? And you know, if this if this was uh, has been going on since the release of iOS four, you know, the, at least a year ago. How come it's taken us, us this long to to figure this out? That that's those are the couple of things that I find most interesting about all of this. Besides yeah. the obvious big privacy implications. Oh my gosh! What are we going to do
3: about this? Right. And the fact that Al Franken didn't close his letter by saying, this seems wrong to me, Al Franken. <laughs> um, how about to you, William Carlton? How, how do, uh, what's your take on this?
1: My take on this is is that we want this. There's, there's two sides to this. And as users, we want our phones to be very sensitive to our location where we are. And I don't know if you got the email I just sent you, Denise, but I took a screenshot of... Um, of uh, foursquare and representing how i used it mm-hmm. when i was in when i was in chicago a couple weeks ago visiting with my brothers evan i'm sorry i didn't i didn't um, come in and say hi to you
0: yeah um, i knew you were here though
1: <laughs> but there's a new release of foursquare that's just incredibly more powerful than the than the than the prior versions have been and one among i won't get in, go into gory detail but one of the functions is this explore tab that lets you, uh, you know, obviously it knows where you are, and then it gives you. Is there any chance, is there any chance you could get that email? And uh, yeah, I just sent it up to the, the it, studio,
3: so hopefully, while we're talking, we can flash it up.
1: Oh, oh, okay. Well, it 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 located where I was. It let me make a thumb tap or two about kind of what category I wanted to be in, and then it displayed in a radial format. What was going on in real time at different places, and then by tapping on the icon for each place, I would see the, the the live stream of what people were saying about the place and get a sense of how many people were there and and the the character of the place. Not just in general, not user reviews that are you know sort of dated and boring like a like a you know some sort of review site, but what people were actually saying. Uh, at that at that moment and who they were connecting with and pictures of who was there and what was going on at, e- at each scene. And I thought it was incredibly powerful. And I don't I don't know enough technically to know how plausible this is. But in the in the bit of reading I did to prepare for the show about what these devices are holding, it sounds to me like there could be some legitimate concern about uh, the the battery drain on the device and that and if the device because it isn't actually locating. You as precisely as Foursquare was locating me in Chicago the other week. I think what it really is keeping track of is where the um, cell phone towers are or where um, uh, uh, Wi-Fi hotspots are. So it's kind of approximating where you are, and then that helps supplement or or substitute for when you don't need to, you know, make the the full pull on on GPS. So. You know, as consumers, we want the devices to do this, I think. We, we, we're still pushing what they can do. It does have a dark side, right, because if the law – if legal doctrine doesn't change, if the legal standards are still going to be, look, a phone is like a cigarette pack. It's on your person. It's incidental to your arrest. You know, we already know that there was a California case, and Denise, said, you said you talked about it on the show before. There's a, mm-hmm. um, a a, 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 a case about um, it being okay for the officer to take the cell phone from, from a person and check their text messages, and there was something on the text message that was incriminating for this particular person. You know, what? Where do you where do you draw that line? Is it okay then to take my phone from me and see where I've been checking in? and 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 pull out the the data and here's where the metaphors that the courts use break down too because they they talk about it as though the data resides on the phone and maybe in the case of a text message or think, simple things like that sure there's resident memory in the phone but a lot of what we're doing on our on the phone is is uh is a mix of data that's resident on the phone but mostly just pulling real-time information from a server somewhere else so so when you take somebody's Phone from them. Are you just looking at a static record of the past, or are you actually sort of virtually sitting down at their desktop and opening up into all their connections in the world as they're refreshing themselves in real time? So, I, 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 I guess I, I, I've answered you two ways. I think we want these devices to have this kind of power. We need them, desire them to have this kind of power, but. We're not um, we're not proactively thinking about um, uh, supporting the privacy concerns with with um, changes in the in 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 how we think about surveillance.
3: Right. Well, M. Benson in IRC points out, you know, oh, my gosh, the iPhone also saves your photos and your email and your call logs and your contacts. You know, there's a lot of information on these devices and people know that they are GPS enabled and tracking them around as they use applications like Foursquare. Um, so, you know, I don't I, I think that there there needs to be, you know, adequate disclosure. And I'm with um, the congressional and senatorial concern about the adequacy of the disclosure. I think that's where um, we have sort of a disconnect between people's, use, people's expectations of what's actually happening. You know, they know their emails and photos are there. They don't necessarily know that um, this information's being where they are is not just an ephemeral thing, that it's being cached and uh, put on other devices. And I think, you know, you raise the excellent point, Bill, that um, we need also to, to have some clarification over what third parties, without your permission, uh, can access that data. You know, if you're if you're uh, someone who leaves their phone unlocked and you leave it laying around, you know, you're you're going to be kind of getting what you deserve. But um, if you're someone who act- actively tries to uh, take security measures and and privacy measures with regard to this information, and a police officer, nevertheless, you know, in violation of what people think of as their Fourth Amendment rights, um, can just pick it up and track you around. Town, um, there is a big concern there. Evan, you've been uh, using Foursquare for a while, and we talked last week about uh, getting your take on it in against the background of all these uh, privacy confer- concerns. You want to bring us up to speed now?
0: Well, sure. I mean, I I uh, started using it a, a couple of weeks ago, and you know, and it's a lot of fun. And um, I guess I I don't take the privacy concerns too seriously. Well let me say this correctly you know i am concerned about privacy um mm-hmm. but the way that i control that is i of course use a lot of discretion as to uh who i share my check-ins with you know my friends you know the the people i'm friends with on on foursquare um I don't get too crazy and, and ask people like Bill Carlton to be friends on Foursquare until I actually talk, have a voice conversation with him on, on Twill. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I don't check into, um, you know, my own home. Uh, I uh-huh. know that you can set it so that your um, address isn't disclosed or anything, but still it's, you know, it's probably tracked somewhere by someone <laughs> as we kind of have, have, figured out from, from some of the other parts of this conversation. So, you know, I, I just look at it as, you know, generally useful and, you know, just try to make some very simple, um, you know, uses of it that, that don't run the risk of, of jeopardizing, um, you know, my, my personal safety or, um, you know, I, as, as I've expressed before, I see two sides of this coin when it comes to, all of the data we have about ourselves, whether it be our browsing habits or our social graph, or you know, taking it uh, to another layer of complexity, our all of our the composite location-based data about ourselves. There's two sides to this. One is the concern about your own personal safety. You know, is there a stalker who's going to do you bodily harm? Then the other side of it is you know just the creepiness factor of you know the companies, this monolithic uh, commercialism that that uh, over. Uh, overrides us all uh you know in the, in this in the, with this composite data. So my use of it is is done with both of those things in mind, not doing anything that's going to send you know all those crazy stalkers who are after me already uh my way uh or to uh I don't care if you know the the information this information is known by you know this monolithic commercialism that that over- overlies us as well. That's what governs my use of it and makes it Quite enjoyable. It's it's a lot of fun to collect points and get badges. And I know I'm about two years late to the game, but uh, I'm having a great time.
3: Right, and There's and that. I've been using it a little bit longer than you have, and I'm using it exactly the way that you just described. And uh, would just throw in to that discussion that their their privacy policy is one of the nicest I've ever seen. Um, they really do a good job of simply and concisely disclosing exactly what you're doing by using their app. Um, Marty, any thoughts on this before uh, we get into another topic?
2: Uh, Just two anecdotes to illustrate the duality uh, of nature that Evan pointed up. About a year ago, I was at a concert, uh, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if any of my friends were here? So I said where I was on Twitter and Facebook uh, and Foursquare at the same time. And astoundingly, uh, this was in New York, and a friend from California in on business was in the upper balcony, uh, so he saw the, the Facebook post, and, and we met, you know, during intermission. So that is the uh, amazing, fun aspect of social networking, especially using geolocation services. On the dark side, I should direct your viewership to the website, pleaserobme. Uh, <laughs> dot com which would troll for a while Twitter uh, feeds and Foursquare feeds and broadcast the names of people who clearly were not home at the moment and were saying, in effect, please rob me. Uh, It was an ironic uh, website, of course. But if you want to see some materials about protection of privacy, you've got a crack staff there, Denise.
3: Yes, we do indeed. (laughs) There it is. Yes, that that was entertain, an entertaining experiment in uh, showing people um, that perhaps their privacy settings were not as locked down as they would like them. Um, so Denise, when I'm
1: is, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Do, could I have one little rejoinder before we leave the Foursquare um, issue? Just sure. to kind of tie in yeah the what evan said about the mass commercialization and i think foursquare is in a kind of a honeymoon period right now where they they haven't they haven't ruined it yet and maybe they have a chance not to ruin it but right now my my experience of it is they've been, they've enabled all this new rich functionality and right now it doesn't appear to be have, have been co-opted by 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 being sponsored or commercialized it looks like it's really organic user generated stuff mm-hmm. that's going on. And if they, if there's a tipping point at which they say, okay, now that the users have added all this audience and all this value and all this excitement, we're now going to stack the deck and sell or prioritize information based on sponsorship, kind of like what the, the decision Facebook has long since made, that's going to, that's going to suck the, uh, the energy out of the, out of the experience. Yeah
0: well i I know Denise said you'd close this out for us, but you know mm-hmm. I've just got okay. got to add on on that point it, it's my experience at least among the members of my social networks and I'm using that term broadly, all the people that I'm connected with on you know foursquare facebook twitter uh pe- you know subscribers I know to my blog or whatever um. Facebook Places seems to be so much more popular than Foursquare at least among my uh graph. So that is already been co-opted. I mean that was co-opted even before it had a chance to begin, right? So yeah,
1: um, yeah.
0: that would th- th- there's already some built-in concern there with, uh, with, with with all of that. Yeah, Foursquare is is you know above the fray so far, but uh you know that that's just fine. Hopefully it'll always stay that way, but we've got plenty to be concerned about already with uh You know, Mark hanging out with President Obama talking about all this stuff.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I wonder if they checked in (laughs) on on Facebook places. (laughs) Hanging with the Prez. I I don't know how
0: well it's supported on the Blackberry, so
3: we'll see. Hey, so one thing that's great about Netflix is that uh, you can't rack up a whole lot of unknown charges on it and neither can your kids because it's an all-you-can-eat kind of price. You pay that monthly fee at whatever level you choose and you get, of course, your DVDs in the mail if you decide to go that route. Uh, But, of course, really the more powerful and fun way folks have been using Netflix lately since they've basically come in and dominated this area is the uh, instant streaming that... service does and uh, we're really thrilled to have them as a sponsor of this week in law they deliver movies directly to your home to your phone to your ipad to your various devices that run the apps for uh, netflix and that saves you time money and hassle their fees are quite low and reasonable Uh, Depending on what level you choose, you can customize it to um, whatever usage is best for you. And you can instantly watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed directly to your PC, your Mac, your television via various devices. Or, um, you know, you've got your Xbox 360, your PS3, your Nintendo Wii, your Roku. And so many DVD players these days just come standard with um, the Netflix app on them. I know my dad just got himself a new Blu-ray player and he's thrilled that he now has Netflix streaming uh, just as sort of an add-on to that device. You can watch as many movies as you want. Anytime you want, there are never any late fees or due dates and we have a streaming pick for you. And I uh, picked this Evan with you in mind. And I'm so thrilled to report that uh, the original Monty Python's Flying Circus Uh, aired originally between 1969 and 1974, has 45 episodes available for streaming instantly on Netflix. You know, some of our favorites, uh, Nobody Expects the Spanish Inquisition is There, The Buzz Aldrin Show, Live from the Gorilla Mat, uh, it's it's just so great to see all. So 45 yeah,
0: the, the 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 parrot would be there, right? In the pet store I with think the dead the parrot. parrot is
3: there. I I haven't looked through all forty five titles. Of course, that so. is a classic one too. Um, full frontal nudity, <laughs> <laughs> the naked ant, <laughs> uh, the enti- the show just entitled intermission. They're all there, forty five of them. Just waiting for you to stream. If you're a Netflix subscriber already. Uh, these are right there as part of your account. If you're not one already, you can instantly watch these or choose from thousands of TV episodes and other movies when you register for a free trial membership. Go to netflix.com twit and be sure to sign up for your free trial. We thank Netflix for their support of This Week in Law. Um, So we've got the folks in UC Berkeley at their business school, the Haas School of Business there, saying net neutrality is good. And they are um, saying so for a reason that doesn't really get talked about much, although, of course, it makes perfect sense that really net neutrality is all about economics and protectionism or the lack thereof. Um, So there's a paper over there at uh, UC Berkeley done by um, some of their folks at the Haas School talking about how the beneficial economic impacts of net neutrality. Um, so it's, it's nice to see that laid out. And of course, uh, you know, Berkeley may be perceived as a more liberal school than most. You would think that uh, business schools in general would take a more conservative bent on this. And the conservative uh, wing of the Republican Party seems to be against uh, net neutrality on the whole and uh, what the FCC has laid out. But uh, here we have a business school saying no. In fact, you know, from a business standpoint, net neutrality makes sense. Um, So I just wanted to toss that out there. Uh, Bill, did you take a look at this? And do you agree that uh, from the economic standpoint, uh, net neutrality is good?
1: I believe net neutrality is good. I did look at that uh, I did look at that um uh post. Net neutrality is good. I think it's good to have economic uh, economists weigh in and come up with a you know an economic rationale to kind of counter the the onslaught against net neutrality that's happening because there are there are uh, uh business reasons, philosophical reasons, economic reasons. And sometimes the uh, the opposition uh, you know hides under another guy, so the 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 net the net neutrality, as modest as it was, the net neutrality order and as imperfect as it was, and we can get into that because it isn't really about net neutrality. The order the FCC tried to promulgate at the end of last year was really about uh, a net neutrality for your grandparents' internet, the landline wired. Broadband, not mobile broadband, because the FCC came down basically on the with the Google Verizon proposal from last summer that 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 mobile broadband be exempted from from rules and that that the mobile internet essentially allowed to be carved up and privatized um, so I think with the ascendancy of the not trying to take sides in politics, but with the ascendancy of the Republican Congress and the move to even just sort of squash that little nod toward a kind of net neutrality or some net neutrality principles that might be analogized or uh, applied to, to, to the mobile broadband development, at least as a measuring stick, a moral measuring stick. They want to undercut that too. And I think it, it gets into this sort of is government wholly bad and is the free market always smarter? And if we just let private actors, if we let the carriers, uh, you know, fight over and decide when it's time to build bigger pipes, and if they can profit from that, they'll put more investment. It's sort of a faith in the free market as the solution here, versus um, a kind of a uh, a public commons uh, point of view, which would be just like the roads in the fifties enabled commerce because somebody just decided to just build them all and put a buttload of money into building roads everywhere. You know we need big fat open pipes that that aren't that aren't uh, that aren't being used by people to leverage uh, advantages they might have in the marketplace that it that, that it might be very dangerous in fact to have um, uh, uh, somebody that owns a bunch of pipes and also happens to have certain services and and is inevitably going to privilege the transmission of those services to the detriment of others that might take up excessive bandwidth, all in the name of, you know, sort of network, network management. Um, so I guess I'm uh, coming back around to the point of that post. It's good to see another side of the argument, uh, you know, opened up, which is sort of like, hey, by the way, okay, let's, let's take this free market stuff and investment stuff. That actually doesn't work either. That actually doesn't. That I I think that was the thrust of that of that post. But I'm not an economist. I my objection to the to 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 privatizing the internet would be more along um, philosophical grounds, uh, concern for democracy and and just kind of the health of the of web entrepreneurialism and and startups and entrepreneurship because it would not be good for for uh, for the, the the web revolution that we're just at the beginning of to be stifled and have and have the Internet kind of privatized or become like cable TV in the next few years.
3: Right. I should mention that, uh, that for anyone who wants to delve into this in more detail and look at the whole paper, uh, it, you can find this and all the other uh, stories that we've discussed today at our discussion points over on Delicious, delicious.com slash law slash episode 108, just slash 108. Uh, we'll get you there. And uh, this would be a paper uh, by Benjamin Hermelin and uh, others at the Haas School. So um, very interesting stuff that they've contributed to the discussion there. And I, if, I, uh, I think sorry, it's uh,
0: really it's really important to point out that his co-author was named Nicholas Economides. <laughs> isn't that great? An economist named Economides. It reminds me of this list that my father-in-law has has curated for years and i've kind of helped him add to it of people whose vocations match their name or their names match their vocations on the list are a urologist named dr wiswell a lawyer named uh, jury his last name's jury a a, (laughs) uh, podiatrist named sorto so got to add you know econometes to the list you know he's an economist so
3: absolutely he was destined to be one from birth
0: yeah, it's in No
3: doubt from a whole family of economists. <laughs> so they're they're putting the rubber stamp on uh, on net neutrality and saying that it's good for um, reasons uh, related to our economic health. We have an EU court uh, saying that internet filtering, on the other hand, is bad uh, for reasons related to um, copyright law and what it is and is not supposed to do. Uh, So this was an interesting uh, point that came up this week. Let me uh, get into the details of it here. One second. It's not right in front of me. Here we go. Um, Good, uh, really good write up by Rick Falkvinja, if I am uh, pronouncing him correctly. Uh, Falkvinja on Info Policy. Uh, He sounds like a good Swedish guy. Today, the European Court of Justice gave a preliminary opinion that will have far-reaching implications in the fight against over-aggressive copyright monopoly abusers. It is not a final verdict, but the Advocate General's position is uh, that the court, uh, it is the Advocate General's position and the court generally follows that. And the Advocate General says that no ISP can be required to filter the Internet and particularly not to enforce the copyright monopoly. Um, So that's an interesting uh, point over there in the land where three strikes have been uh, enacted in various countries. Um, So um, it's a a positive development, I guess, and one to watch. Uh, Evan, any thoughts on uh, this one?
0: Well, this, you know, this seems like it could be pretty uh, significant. I was not quite clear as to actually what was going on procedurally. It sounded like it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, like a final binding uh, decision, but it was interesting to see kind of at least how one how we could um, kind of compare this to the treatment of, you know, what we call fundamental rights here in the, mm-hmm. the United States in a constitutional analysis and uh, the apparent requirement, I'm looking for my notes on this, the apparent requirement that you know, any regulation for this stuff be, you know, in necessity or, you know, based on necessity and, you know, narrow and all that stuff. Kind of like when we talk about the First Amendment here, uh, you know, anything, you know, given something that's going to constrain free speech needs to be narrowly tailored to meet a compelling government interest. So um, in the name of privacy and, and stuff, it seems like copyright takes a backseat into all this, which is intriguing in and of itself. But then mm-hmm. there's this interesting, Contrast or uh, tension with the freedom of information, so what a what a complicated dynamic that's just really going to take us a, a long time to to sort out in the you know, something really endemic to the information age.
3: Yeah, I really like um, that analogy and and hope that uh, policymakers start thinking the way that you're thinking about um, how to treat internet filtering and and the costs that can be paid for free speech when copyright is overly zealously enforced. Uh, Bill, any thoughts on this one?
1: Yeah. Um, we're, we're of two minds of to this too, aren't we? Because in our, in schools, we want our children to, well, I don't, I say we, the school systems, the, my experiences have been, you know, the kids don't have access to the open internet at school and you also at the Seattle Public Library, a few blocks from where I am. You mm-hmm. don't. I mean, you got to bring your own machine if you want to reach the unfiltered internet. And the point you just made, too, Denise. You know, some of the legislation that looks like it's going to be protective of copyright. I'm trying to remember the name of the one that Senator Wyden of Oregon uh, got stopped in the last Congress before it got through. That would have. That would have. Um, um, from my <laughs> my point of view, would have made it easier for for corporations to serve as vigilantes and take good and make good faith justifications that there was piracy going on. And so that they could, they could, uh, uh, like a, for an example, would be Amazon web services could decide, Oh, there's copyright infringement going on. So we're just going to shut down that customer and sort of, Marty, bypass Marty existing- wasn't
0: that, um, that wasn't that cloaca, right, Marty? <sighs>
2: Uh, I, can't, I can no longer. That's the problem with having a funny nickname for a case. I can't remember the, the correct name. Um, it's a draft bill that was not passed. C-O-I-C-A, COICA. Yes, that would have imposed this oh, sort okay. of, uh, it could have imposed this level of filtering at the ISP level,
1: correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So we 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 call it filtering when we don't like it. And I don't know what we call it when we are trying to protect people from something. Um, Well, maybe maybe we we call it, uh,
3: you know, uh, lurid, immoral gambling, uh, because we're going to talk about that in just a second as well. And uh, what the United States is trying to do to take down some gambling sites. But uh, in the meantime, I'd like to thank our final sponsor for this episode of this week in law, which is Squarespace, the service that I use to update my site and blog bag and Squarespace is the fast and easy way to publish any high quality website or blog. It's been a joy for me to use, and I'm sure it would be for you too. If you haven't tried it yet, it's UI is incredibly easy to use. Um, It makes your blog just, you know, a snap to manage. It's so easy to just uh, pop up that editing screen and tweak your entries just exactly the way you like. There's a WYSIWYG editor, or if you like to dive in and, uh, play with the HTML itself, it gives you that option as well for each post. And it takes that approach, too, to the way your um, actual site is designed. It's optimized for both beginners and CSS experts. So, you know, however much you like to get your hands dirty in the web design process, if you don't like to at all, it makes it's super easy to get a very slick and professional site out. And if you really like to customize things and you know how to do that, Easy to do that too. There are hundreds of design templates to choose from, and you can customize any of them to fit your needs. And the all inclusive service that you get includes several modules to build your website. There's a blog module that includes import and export support for WordPress, Blogger, Movable Type, and Typepad. Export means data portability, something we love here at Twill. Uh, there is a forum capability, a form builder. You can collect email addresses and other information from your site visitors as long as you're doing only good things with them and uh, advising them what you're going to do with them, of course. Uh, There's Flickr photo display. Uh, Choose a thumbnail or slideshow view. Uh, There's a Twitter widget that displays all your tweets on your website in a customizable and great-looking format. There are Google Maps and more. The tracking and uh, built-in uh, SEO tools are great. Uh, they they work seamlessly with your site. There's permission access handling and cloud architecture for speed and site stability so that your site can handle whatever traffic uh, those great big powerful sites might throw at you or something like the Twitter network might throw at you. The drag and drop Ajax interface is just absolutely incredible. You know, you don't have to worry about... Um, It's sketching out exactly where you want things on your site. You just pick it up, lay it down, and that's where it's going to stay. There's an iPhone app that lets you log into your website, an iPad app too, and uh, you can update it from those mobile devices with great ease. Use Squarespace for all your website needs. Build it, host it, and update it any time. And for a free 14-day trial, go to squarespace.com slash twill. There you can sign up for a free account. You don't need a credit card. Just try it out to build your own site. And after you try it, be sure to check out their annual plans for savings of up to 20% off. That's squarespace.com slash twill. So let's talk about uh, this gambling uh, crackdown that happened this week. Uh, we it, it's sort of again, this is one of those uh, other shoe dropping kind of things you know, the u s has never been uh too happy with these um, online poker sites and the way that uh money can uh, flow rather in um, perhaps illegal or nefarious ways through them uh so they're they're coming after them and even though these sites are um uh offshore a lot of them uh that's not stopping the US so it's um a good lesson in uh what the federal authorities can do um yeah, they're trying to uh, seize the US domains marty so why don't we start uh, with that and uh how exactly they plan to shut down these sites
2: well um I don't know how I would advise someone what to do with the domain names other than to say, um, you know, VeriSign is the registry of the .com and .net top-level domain names. They are a United States publicly traded company. Some of the servers are located in the United States. Um, I... Take that back. I guess I'm not going to say I would ever advise anyone to do this, but I might point out to them that were they to take a uh, domain name that was not in a in the .com or .net TLD, perhaps its servers are in some other country, um, and that the registrar was in some other country, then among the things they would not necessarily have to worry about was the United States' ability to make some form of in rem. Seizure. So that's the first thing that strikes me about the posture of this case. The other thing is, um, speaking of Koeke, we we were around the same time there was proposed legislation that would give DOJ increased powers to seize domain names, and that bill was um, never never made it out of committee, I think. And then within two weeks, DOJ was suddenly seizing a lot of domain names. So people are kind of surprised that DOJ apparently always viewed itself as having the power to seize domain names. In and of itself, DOJ, I mean, I don't find it particularly horrible that that law enforcement agencies can seize tools in the, within their jurisdiction used to potentially commit crimes. The problems have to do with the mistakes, and we're seeing a lot of undocumented media coverage of domain names that are being seized by mistake so that that's one of the problems with what's going on
3: it looks like uh, that the in the federal indictments you know even though they're against these offshore entities we've got poker stars based in the isle of man and full tilt poker based in ireland that there are enough you know sort of us players involved For example, uh, there's a defendant, John Campos, vice president of Sun First Bank in Utah, accused of processing gambling revenues in in exchange for a $10 million investment in one of these entities. So, you know, they've got people here that they can go after. And, uh, you know, as you were saying, Marty, they can, to some extent, shut down uh, access to the sites. And I've got to think that the U.S. is a huge market for them. Uh, Bill, uh, is this going to put a crimp in your... uh, your afternoon uh, pastimes
1: <laughs> uh, well i used to, i do I did used to do day trading that's the only gambling I did for about a, you know maybe about a, a year at best, and then it just got too scary for me back in the um, back when Amazon first went public yeah, yeah, that was a long time ago now I stay away from gambling whether it's in uh, whether it's in public equities or or card games or whatever it's all kind of gambling to me
3: right. Evan, is we were talking about you know um, the government uh, pursuing things on, on morality bases. Uh, do you see anything sort of selective about this, or um, anything that smacks you as you know we've got plenty of gambling in the U.S. Why shouldn't we also have gambling online?
0: um i see a, a pretty strong comparison between this and the movement to legalize marijuana uh there's you know two very opposite forces going against one another in at you know at a moral kind of you know supra ethical uh level when it comes to all of this stuff and you know when it comes to a, a great um you know well, when, when important people like this, uh, the was it a president of the bank, you know, the, the Sun vice Bank, yeah, the vice president of Sun First Bank of Utah is one of the defendants, you know, being accused of taking a $10 million bribe, you know, that's when it rises to the level of the government having to take on the mantle of an issue that is that corresponds perfectly with a, a particular moral stance on all of this stuff. And so that's what makes it so uh, remarkable and to those on uh, the opposite side of that government action reprehensible. You know, it, it seems a bit reprehensible to be taking such strong, um, you know, actions on all this this stuff because of the ambiguity of the moral imperative underlying, you know, whether or not um, – Gambling should be legal in the first place. That very, very simple question. So, like so many other issues, it's a it's a tough one uh, for reasons often outside of the scope of the law.
3: Yeah, I think Taking- it's all kind of interesting from an online currency kind of standpoint too. Part of the indictment accuses uh, folks of masking payments from U.S. gamblers in the form of jewelry, golf balls, and flower sales. I think that you know we're we're at the tip of an iceberg of being able to move finances around online in, in very shady ways. And, uh, you know, you're just sort of scratching the surface of it here. What were you going to say, Bill?
1: Oh, I was just going to say just, and I know Marty alluded to it, The the, the reports of people having their domain names seized by mistake. I, um, th- that is, you know, that's really draconian to just, uh, to, to get rid of, uh, legal processes that would, taking somebody's domain name ought to be something that's hard to do, not sort of the first thing you do in the course of an investigation. And so I, I, I can't say I know what the, the current standard is, but the legisl- couple pieces of legislation in the last Congress that would make that easier, Those are not those are not good things. I mean, you want to catch fraud, you want to put people in prison that are stealing money, you want to do whatever you need to do to 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 shut down bad activity but but people's but your domain name is like um i don't know it's almost like a an identity right or a personality right if not also uh um analogous to a uh a property right you know i hope i hope that um for the sake of expediency um again the you know we the standards are evolving and for convenience sometimes we're 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 throwing good things under the bus while chasing bad actors, and uh, domain names become more and more valuable. And that's not that's not something that should be able to be taken away from somebody without really good legal process. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't. Did, did you guys get a sense of whether that was the sort of the first thing that happened here, or whether that was a, a, something that a that a judge ordered uh, with using some kind of injunctive standard and. I haven't dealt dealt
3: deeply enough into the pleadings to know, you know, exactly where this is postured and what happened when. But uh, it is interesting that, you know, that seems to be a standard thing that the government's pulling out of its arsenal these days is, hey, we've got, you know, the ability to yank your domain. So we're going to go ahead and do it. Um. We thought that uh, we said goodbye to the Winklevoss twins last week. Uh, we talked about um, Judge Kaczynski's decision that uh, that did away with their um, attempt to undo their settlement with Facebook. Um, and and I saw a ton of stories and I you know raised eyebrows going, no, no, they can't be coming back again after Judge Kaczynski. Threw them out, but you know, as an appellate lawyer, I just have to jump in here and say they have asked for an en banc hearing of the entire Ninth Circuit, which you know is basically a look see at whether Judge Kozinski did the right thing. En banc hearings are really pretty rarely granted. I don't have the exact statistics, but you know, it's just kind of shot in the dark, and it's the kind of things that that you know lawyers always throw out there. It's not. I think uh, Kara Swisher had the great headline: uh, "Binkleby." How can we miss you if you won't go away? (laughs) They're they're in the process of going away. And this is, you know, I think any halfway decent appellate lawyer would advise them, hey, you know, we've got this process of of asking for review. You're much more likely to get some kind of review from the en banc panel of the Ninth Circuit. That's all the judges on the Ninth Circuit. Huge uh, gaggle of them Um, taking a look just to make sure the right thing happened here. Uh, that you're much more likely to get somewhere with them than, you know, you are trying to petition the U.S. Supreme Court for review of what happened here, because this is not the kind of thing I could ever see the U.S. Supreme Court getting involved with. So, you know, people shouldn't be too surprised that they asked for on banc review. It's just sort of a last ditch effort. Who knows? Maybe something will happen for them. It's sort of like an arrow in the dark. Probably nothing will happen. But if it does, we'll let you know here on Twill. Um, Bill, you were saying, and I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because we uh, we talked about the Celia I, claims uh, last week. But you uh, did you want to weigh in real quickly on this uh, this fellow who who claims he owns half of Zuckerberg's interest per their contractual re- dealings?
1: Sure. Thanks, Denise. I like this subject because I I I put the vincle in the category of whiners but the segalia claim he had written contracts and including uh, uh, unless unless these contracts are, are fraudulent unless these documents are fraudulent but on its face it looks like he had con- written contracts not sort of oral agreements or we wrote something on the back of a napkin or talked about it but actual contracts and then also zuckerberg affirmatively asking him for permission to reuse code that zuckerberg had written for him for another business to be used in something like the Facebook things. So the fact that, uh, that, um, and you know, I know, I know that Facebook's folks have said, this is, you know, this guy's a convicted felon and it's, it's absurd on its, on its face, but the DLA Piper firm has come out with their own sort of press onslaught about, uh, well, we did a lot of due diligence on this and we take these seriously. And I read the complaint and it's a nicely done complaint and it's, and it's got a it's the legal theory holds water, which is, which is essentially this, there is a certain base of code and associated IP that was uh, written in the context of a partnership that's supported by documentation. And so when Zuckerberg, as a founder of Facebook, contributed that IP... Uh, to Facebook he was constructively doing that on behalf of the partnership because he he, he wouldn 't have had authority to give away an asset he didn 't personally own he owned it on you know if he if he was assigning it he was assigning it on on behalf of the partnership so it 's a it 's a good argument you know the case will fall apart if the if the um, Documents are not real, but but if they are real, then then um, then Zuckerberg has a problem. It's not not really Facebook's problem, uh, unless you go out a different layer, because the the complaint is directed at Zuckerberg, and Facebook's only really uh, named at all for one one. I think is seventeen claims, but one for declaratory relief to just basically say Facebook needs to pay attention to whatever gets ordered on all the other prayers for relief against Zuckerberg.
3: Right. Thanks for that. And and we linked to your um, great post unpacking all of that over at WAC6.com. So folks should check that out for more on the I don't know how to pronounce his name, Celia or Segalia. Uh, but uh, he he's going to be interesting to uh, to watch and see if he actually shakes something out in that lawsuit. Um, so we have a couple of just uh, quick things here at the end. I'd just like to say a sad and fond farewell to Google Video, which is uh, not going to be with us for more than I think the next week. And I think that there, you know, who knows why Google decides to shutter various services or not Um, to clearly uh, YouTube has been the, um, the the monstrous success for Google in the video arena and uh, Google Video, I think predated the acquisition of YouTube. Um, but I've always kind of liked it, you know, and it's always been sort of its own little world and community. And, uh, the, the copyright angle of it is, um, that I, I think it's been somewhat easier, uh, less policed, shall we say, easier to find things that you were looking for on Google video, uh, than YouTube because YouTube has gotten all the scrutiny, um, and, you know, far more users and audience. So, um, you know, who knows, maybe that played into it and and it's something that Google will be able to say that, uh, yes, we decided that we were not going to um, operate this site, which didn't have quite the same um, kinds of controls that uh, we've had over on YouTube. I don't know. I'm just wildly speculating there. So um, I am going to be sad to see it go. Goodbye, uh, Google Video. Um what else? Oh, there's this great, and uh, I heard this uh, earlier this week on Tech News Today. Last week, we um, spent some time enjoying and uh, commenting on Google's Copyright School content, uh, Copyright School video. And Marty, I saw you. Uh, you were entertained by that as well. Um, that. Uh, odd in many ways and not really very helpful on uh, explaining fair use and what you can actually um, do to protect yourself uh, on the copyright front. So the folks at Public Knowledge have uh, gone ahead and launched a contest. And if you think you can one better the Google Copyright School video, um, head on over to Public Knowledge and uh, submit your entry. I think they're awarding $1,000. So um that would be uh, pretty cool, and obviously great publicity for the person who gets it. Uh, Evan, you and I uh, in the last couple of days have been uh, noticing this trend toward faux SSIDs for fun and deterrence. Yeah. Um, I was I was sitting in a copy shop the other day and and uh, you know looked at my phone and there was an open Wi-Fi network I could have joined that was called Password Stealer, which uh, after I tweeted prompted Evan to change the name of his network on one of his devices that, you know, actually produces a network that others can see uh, to, what did you call it, VirusBot or something? Y-
0: yeah, vi- VirusBot. <laughs> I, I, I did that a couple of weeks ago when I, when I got my new um, infringing uh, Samsung, uh, you know, Galaxy <laughs> S. There we go. Did I say infringing? Because I guess we'll talk about the patent stuff next week. Am I? Yeah. I guess I am a direct infringer, which they'll have to prove uh, in order to get secondary. Well, anyway, um, yeah, that, that's a lot of fun. You know, the the the, the Galaxy S4G has a, uh, a mobile. Wi-Fi hotspot capability, you can set up a mobile hotspot, which is just wonderful. And, uh, you know, I was having some trouble connecting with my work computer from because of all the weird stuff there. So I'm just like, I'm just going to set the darn thing to be open. Um, And uh, so I called it virus Bot, thinking that that would be, you know, enough, um, you know, deterrence, uh, even more deterrence than what, you know, 128-bit encryption would be.
3: Right, so I'm going to go ahead and make that our t- one of our tips of the week to uh, name your SSID something incredibly um, terrifying. And I was getting tweets back from people that they'd seen once called Honeypot and other things. And, uh, you know, what better way? Why use WEP or WPA? And just scare people off. They'll never nice. jump on your network. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the, other, uh, the other tip we have for you comes from The Economist, which had a great piece. Let me uh, get the author's name for you here. Uh, actually, it doesn't even have the author. It just says it's from the print edition, but it's called Spare Us the Email, Yada, Yada. And it's a nice piece on how nobody reads email disclaimers and they're completely useless. And they just sort of propagate each other um, like, you know, salmon spawning <laughs> for no particular reason <laughs> other than, you know, they're compelled to do so. And, uh so it's it's a good piece, a uh, well-thought-out piece on why you should really rethink those things and probably just trash them all together. Um, so do check the, out, spare us the email, yada, yada, and uh, consider what you're going to do with yours if you actually use one. Uh, I like uh, Cory Doctorow's Doctor comical ones um, or nothing at all. <laughs> Finally, our resources of the week uh, are, um, again, we have a comical one and a not-so-comical one, uh law and the multiverse which came my way via spatial comfort uh on twitter he happened to be my 7000th uh, twitter follower too so uh thank you for both the cool resource of the week and uh, the Twitter love, um, and he pointed me toward a blog called Law and the Multiverse: Superheroes, Supervillains, and the Law. Um, I've seen this kind huh. of thing before. Maybe you guys—I don't know if I've seen this exact one, but um, maybe you guys have too. Where someone, you know, will take the fictional um, environment and sort of flesh out all the legal concerns. So this one, uh, this one, for example, the uh, current. Uh, posting from today, looks at She-Hulk number three and, uh, again, just tries to um, put the fictional world in the context of our actual legal framework and how things would <laughs> play out. It's uh, pretty pretty cool to check out. And uh, finally, our um, not-so-comical and perhaps quite useful uh, resource of the week was from Lisa Brodkin, who was on with us last week, and it's a form that Google has that she just sort of unearthed. I don't think there was any fanfare about this, but if you um, have a a court order against a third party who has posted allegedly unlawful content and you would like to have uh, Google enforce that court order to the extent that uh, they can, if your court order is directed to Google, you're not supposed to use this form. They don't accept this form as service of process. But uh, if your court order is against a third party and involves what Google can do to help enforce that court order, uh, there's a form, handy-dandy form, where you just uh, put in your name, you uh, upload a PDF, and uh, they'll process that for you. So uh, that could be quite useful. I know you just want
0: to run through this quickly, but yeah, go ahead. why aren't why aren't we upset about this um the fact that that Google is doing this you know evidently being more solicitous to people who have you know perhaps um pulled the wool over the eyes of some poor state court judge in a rural part mm-hmm. of the country. And Google is at least giving uh, a nod to the fact that they might they might listen to that. I find this a little bit troubling. I mean, fortunately, Google says, you know, there's no guarantees we'll listen to what it says, but I could see a judge, you know, really getting bamboozled and ordering that perfectly protected content be taken off the, the web. And then here you've got a direct line into to Google to let it know of that and to have that, you know, really be, be squelched here. I mean, it seems like they're trying to do a couple of nice things in the name of, of public service with the copyright school and than this, but man, mm-hmm. there are some uh, some serious uh, derogatory aspects of them as well.
3: Yeah, I guess that's a good point. Um, you know, th- at least from my standpoint, if you've gone to the trouble of getting a court order, you're right. You know, maybe uh, it's not something that should have been um, issued or, you know, hasn't been vetted by higher courts, but at least it's it serves some gatekeeping role and uh, you, it can bump it up the attention process, I think, by uh, using this form. Uh, Marty, your bill. Any thoughts on this thing?
2: That's beyond libertarian, Evan. That, that's a that's a pretty. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's an odd position that <laughs> state court orders should not have a presumption of validity. Which is, <laughs> I mean, yeah, state court judges have made mistakes, but as far as a presumption goes, I mean, we understand that intermediaries like Google and and Amazon and, and domain name registrars, when they get Demand letters from, from private parties, yeah, these are unvetted claims. And I think we should we would be annoyed if, if Google was taking upon itself to evaluate claims. And this is why when they do have like trademark dispute policies, they'll say like, you know, give me a certified copy of your trademark registration. So that way we don't have to evaluate anything ourselves. The idea that they shouldn't trust a state court order – it's a little odd, in well, my right. point of view. I see well, it ma- as just
3: you know sort of a shortcut to the Google legal team, and if you've got a real issue with the order, then you know you have remedies for that.
2: Bill, yeah, I, right. I mean, candidly, I actually was involved in a case that went to the Second Circuit, in which a .com registrar um, enforced an Alabama Alabama state court order, and that was like a complete defense uh, from any any wrongdoing on on the .com registrar's part. These things are presumed valid.
0: Well, but I guess I owe a mea culpa for my jadedness. Of oh, and I'm not, you know, indicting any of the judges that I appear in front of, of course. But you know, never, having never. practiced really, there, yeah, have, having practiced in the Circuit Court of Cook County here in Chicago, I'm just sometimes skeptical about what state court judges say. I'll leave it at
1: that.
3: <laughs> How about well, you, Bill I'm in Seattle?
1: I'm awed by the I, by the, uh, the the learning here among you. You three obviously are real lawyers that go in front of a court i'm a transactional guy that <laughs> that, that yeah, is frightened of uh, getting anywhere close to the courtroom right mm-hmm.
3: well as are most of us and any sane person so um with that we'll go ahead and uh, wrap up this episode of this week in law we really appreciate uh, having you on the show great job bill great insights thank,
1: thank you thanks thanks for having me i'm uh, uh that the the link you gave us to this uh Site impl- applying law to superhero actions is just absolutely outrageously funny. That's i yes. I'm sneaking a peek at it while we're talking here. That's that's going to be a, a fun read.
3: It, it is, and uh, you know when when to leisurely enjoy uh, on your mobile device or uh, your reading device of choice, um, along with uh, your Angel Trivia app that looks very cool and uh you have the uh the great initials of wac and the great handle of wax6 on twitter where folks can find you there and wax6.com for uh more of your insights on the field of technology and startup law so thanks so much for joining us
1: been been a been a great pleasure being with you old pros thanks a lot <laughs>
3: Marty, great to have you back
2: you know um I would point out that there is a lawyer that filed a trademark application for superhero lawyer, um, hmm. and Marvel and DC own jointly own a registration for the word superhero, and they have brought an opposition against that lawyer who is outraged and is going to has sworn to defend it. Um, I point that out, but you blame me for these outrageous examples, like the fact that they claim that they own the Mark superhero. So I'll just not even mention it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Mentioned by not mentioning, <laughs> not mentioning by mentioning. Marty, uh, so great to get all your uh, thoughts and expertise on these trademark and trade dress issues. So much in the news today. Of course, folks can, can follow along as things develop at the trademarkblog.com and and uh, follow you on Twitter at Schwimmer Legal.
2: And Denise, you can borrow my Le Bouton pumps anytime. Thank you. I need some. I was
3: telling Evan; he was asking if I, were, I was going to wear mine on the show, and I said, "Well, I'll just have to see what I can cobble together from Payless Shoe Source, <laughs> because I, you know, if I'm going to drop my uh, my cash on something that makes me feel, uh, you know, sleek and." Well, like I'm using a well-designed item, I I tend to drop it on those Apple items, so yeah. <laughs> that, that's where it goes. Um, Evan, great having you back on as well.
0: Yeah, awesome to be here. And you know, thank heaven above that we can just be talking about mundane things like you know Apple and Samsung and you know all these privacy things with our iPhones and stuff like that instead of Skynet. Uh, going online and becoming self-aware and launching its attack on humanity, which <laughs> happened this past week, right? It's Were you so aware of that fact? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So, because those implications would be much more um, pressing, I guess. So, I'm glad we can be talking about these things. Thanks for thanks for having me. Great time. Yeah, you Good know, someone with- has to. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs>
3: All right, guys, uh, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Thank you so much for tuning into This Week in Law. We record every Friday at 11 Pacific, 1800 UTC at live.twit.tv. Uh, you can find us in all sorts of venues after that, after the live recording. You can find us at twit.tv twill. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us through any MediaFly-enabled device. And uh, we really appreciate you uh, joining us for this discussion of law and culture and technology. And uh, we hope to see you again next week. Hit us up at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisweekinlaw, where we post up pre-show questions. Get your thoughts on what we're going to discuss. And uh, until next week, we'll say bye-bye and uh, walk carefully in your Le Boutonnes. Cheers.